Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Coram Deo Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Third Wednesday Theology, and we are talking about sin and death. Herman Bothick, The Wonderful Works of God, chapter 13. It's a 40-page chapter. It's a big one. There's a lot to say about sin and death, but... Bethany, you said even in the first page, it answered a question that you had. It did. I had recently been thinking about, I I don't even know how or why it came to me, but I was wondering, like, where in the Bible does it talk about the angels falling from heaven? Like, I couldn't, I just remember hearing that as a kid and growing up with that. Then I was like, I read through the Bible a couple times, and I don't remember where it specifically mentions that. He talks about it on the first page. And then he also kind of poses a thing that I, or he says something that I, I had never thought of before, which was that, that, was that the first place that sin, like, entered before Adam and Eve? Yeah, yes, you're nodding yeah. your head. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the rest of your sentence. <laughs> because I did not, I never thought of that before. Yes, Bavink poses some very interesting questions about evil and the entrance of evil into the world. And he basically says, hey, there's some mysteries surrounding this. The Bible tells us explicitly about how sin entered into the human race. Mm-hmm. There are questions about when did when did angels fall and mm-hmm. how, wh- when in the order of creation are we supposed to understand all of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just realized that was like some weird story that I like carried over from my childhood. And I'm like, wait, where in the Bible does it actually talk about that? And yeah. There you go. Page one, Bobbing tells you. He talks about, hey, here's what, here's what happened with the angels. And then he goes on to say, now let's talk about humans because that's our world. He does give a few paragraphs to angels, which right at the beginning, you're like, okay, we're going to talk about sin. So we're starting with Adam and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Nope. He starts with the angels. Yeah, it definitely threw me. I love Bovink. I was sitting in the living room reading this alongside my wife, and I was like, I wish I would have just read Bovink years ago. It would have helped me so much. He's so thorough. Like He treats so many different topics with so much helpfulness. Uh, I just am uh, I, I am so thankful for this work. By the way, I heard there's some listeners that like skip when we do the third Wednesday theology. They're like, oh, that's the yeah. episode. Yeah, they're not listening right now. Come on, y'all. We got we to gotta be theologians. Hey, you write in and tell us how we can make this more interesting. Bethany's idea was that for this episode, we were going to review Easter candy while also talking about Bavink. <laughs> mm. But then we didn't we didn't actually get the Easter candy. No, so. nobody nobody gave us any. <clears throat> no, no snacks. There are no snacks. And thankfully, I would have had to probably eat peeps, and so I'm just glad. <laughs> peeps are like those bad eggs that like dye your mouth weird colors. Okay, you as a Christian need to think about sin and death. You need to understand it. You need to think deeply about it. It matters, and it matters because it's answering. It's the Bible's answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? That is a question that everybody wants an answer to, and every different philosophical system or worldview has an answer to the question, hey, what's wrong with the world? And what's the answer? What's the solution? How do we fix it? And so the Bible's answer is what's wrong with the world is sin. And the biblical storyline traces out the 
the entrance of sin into the world and the problems that sin brings and the curse of sin and how God redeems us from sin. And what Bavink does in a very deft way is he goes back and forth between Scripture and between our experience as human beings. And so he just wants to say, here's what the Bible says, and here's what you know as a person. And so the first place he starts, I'm not going to review the whole chapter thoroughly, but I'm just going to sort of give you some themes that are present in this chapter and a couple quotes that are very helpful. And Dustin, you said you had a couple, you said his definition you found really helpful. Yeah, it was really helpful. We'll get to that in a second. But first, Bavink says, hey, here's what you know as a human being. Number one, you have a conscience, and so you have felt guilt. You know that you've done things wrong. You know intuitively that something is wrong with you. Second, you also try to evade responsibility for that. You know that you always try to wiggle out from what that might mean for you. He has this great line on page 207 where he says, man is always inclined to transfer his guilt to the circumstances. We always want to blame somebody else, <laughs> blame the circumstances, have a reason why you, you made me do that, and so it's not my fault. And so he says, hey, if you just pay attention to your own soul, here's what you'll see. You have a conscience that convicts you of things you've done wrong and of guilt, and you have a tendency to want to justify yourself. And those two things in and of themselves speak very plainly to exactly what the Bible says about our nature and constitution. I absolutely underlined that in t- on page 207. Man is always inclined to transfer his guilt to the circumstances. And when he uses the word always, I'm like, that's actually the place where always can be used. <laughs> it's just, we're always ready to evade responsibility. I also appreciate how shortly after that he talks about the body. Uh, so he doesn't just let sin be something uh, in our minds or in our thoughts or in our imagination, which he does talk about in his definition, but he, he brings in the body. Uh, saying that he is spirit, but he is also body too. Yep. And I think that's really important. He he has a really interesting, as he talks about the feeling of conviction, he says, here's what we tend to do. We want to blame God for the pro- for our problems and for the problems in the world. He says, you, you basically have two choices. You can vindicate man and blame God, or you can vindicate God and blame man. In other words, the, the problem is either ours to own or it's God's fault for making us this way or for letting the world be this way. And so he has this really interesting um, statement. This is back a few pages on page 205. He says, The apostle James testifies that God tempts no man. Naturally, the meaning of this is not that God tries no man or puts him to the proof. Scripture frequently reports instances in which he does just this, be it in Abraham, Moses, Job, Christ himself, or Adam. But... When someone fails the test, he is immediately inclined to charge God with the guilt of the fall and to say that God tempted him. That is, that God tried him with the intention of making him fall or put him to a test in which he must necessarily fail. The reason that stood out to me is I was having a conversation with another pastor just last week, and he was telling me a story of a guy who had had committed adultery in three different situations, and finally when he was sort of in a very despairing place and and when, when confronted by a Christian brother said, hey, the, the, it's God's fault. Like God, God told me he would deliver me from temptation, but obviously he didn't and he can't. And that must mean it, it's not, it's not my problem. It's that God isn't true to his word. And it's just an indication that we all have a tendency to do that, to want to blame God for the reasons why we have sinned or have experienced the consequences of sin in our lives. And it's Bavink is putting his finger on the reality that we're either going to blame God or we're going to blame ourselves. And he says, Scripture is the book which from beginning to end 
vindicates God and implicates man. And that's a good way of summarizing Scripture's view of sin. This is not God's fault. This is your fault. And you have got to own the reality of sin, what it's done to you and what it's done to the world. Now, Bavink stands in the Reformed tradition, and here's what that means. It means three things. One, he has an Augustinian view of sin, and here's what that means. Augustine, as a philosopher, was wanted to be very clear, and this is important because of Augustine's debate with the Manichaeans, who were early—I mean, these, these kinds of people are still around today in different form. People who want to say, hey, the problem with the world is the material world. So, like, the soul is good, but the body is bad— um, the, the spirit is good, but world, worldliness is bad. And the problem with the world is that we really have in us the inclination to do what's right, but it's just that we're, we're in a body and our bodies betray us and they make us do things we don't want to do. And that's an expression of the idea that matter itself is bad. Bavink says, if you just trace what's behind that, it's blaming the problem on the material world. That was a problem that Augustine faced as well. And Augustine developed what is called in Christian theology the privation theory of evil. And what that means is evil is not a thing. It's the lack of something. So the best, the analogy Augustine used was, you know, day and night, right? Night is not a thing. It's actually the absence of the sun. It's when the sun revolves around the other side of the earth and it's not there in the sky. And so we lack the sun's light. But darkness isn't really a thing as much as it's the absence of something. And he says in the same way, sin isn't as much a thing as the absence of something. Bavink puts it this way. Evil can only come after the good, can only exist through the good and on the good, and can really consist of nothing but the corruption of the good. That's a classic Augustinian way of saying it, that evil is basically a a parasite, um, is a way to think about it. It it lives on the host of what's good, and it gets it, the only way it can exist is by corrupting what is Good And so the Bible's vision from beginning to end is that human life is good, the world is good, the created order is good, and what sin has done is to corrupt what is good and twist it into, um, into a misshapen sort of version of itself. Dusty, you, you mentioned that you liked his definition of sin. What stood out to you about that? His definition was helpful. Um, he kind of has five parts to it, and they're not clunky. Uh, they, they're really streamlined. He says it begins with darkening of the understanding, continues with the excitement of the imagination, stimulates desires in the heart, and culminates in an act of the will. And the reason why I think that's helpful is because we, we tend to think about sin as doing the wrong thing or instead of doing the right thing. But he backs that up quite a ways and says, hey, this actually is a darkening of the understanding. So it does, your mind is at, at work here. And then that second part continues with the excitement of the imagination is really important because I, d- I just don't think, especially in the Reformed tradition, I don't know if we use our imagination enough. Hmm. And so I don't know that we know how to take captive our imagination. Since, we're, since we don't want to do the wrong thing, I think sometimes imagination runs wild. Then it stimulates desire in the heart. But I think you could say the wrong desire. Right. He, Even going off the Augustinian stuff. Yeah, he mentions that in the chapter that it's it's an over-desire or a, right. an incorrect desire. And then eventually culminates in an act of the will. So I'm eventually going to do the wrong thing and sin. Yes. Or not do the right thing. Yes, very Augustinian. All right, I said he, he stands in the Reformed tradition that means three things. One, that he's in the legacy of Augustine. But two, that he wants to differentiate 
a classic biblical view from Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. So here we go. We just use two big theology words that for you listeners that don't read theology books for a living, we're going to explain them, okay? Pelagius was an early uh, opponent of Augustine. He lived in the uh, late late third or sorry late fourth century, um, and here's how Bavinck explains what Pelagius thought about sin. Because what what Bavinck is working out here is, hey, the Bible talks about original sin. It talks about the idea that sin is something we inherit and it's like a part of us from the beginning. How is that possible? And he says there are those who, together with Pelagius, deny such a connection. According to them. Every sinful deed is an action which stands by itself, which introduces no change into human nature, and which can therefore in the next moment be succeeded by an exceptionally good deed. After Adam had transgressed the commandment of God, he remained in his inner nature, disposition, and will altogether the same. There is, so this argument goes, no such thing as a sinful nature or sinful disposition or habit, for all nature is created by God and remains good. There are only sinful deeds." Okay, that's a statement of the Pelagian view, which is every sin is a discrete act that happens in the moment. You don't have a sinful nature. There's nothing corrupted with the inside of your being. You just chose to do the wrong thing in that moment. Now, obviously, uh, he, he goes on to say, uh, this effort to explain the universal sinfulness of mankind is not only in conflict with Holy Scripture at every point, but it is also so superficial and inadequate that it is rarely supported by anyone. It is refuted by facts from our own experience and our own lives. We all know from experience that a sinful action is not external to us like a dirty garment which can be taken off and laid aside. Rather, it is intimately connected with our inner nature and leaves ineradicable traces upon it. After each sinful act, we are no longer what we were before. Sin makes us guilty and it makes us unclean. It robs us of peace of mind and heart. It is followed by regret and remorse, and it confirms in us the inclination towards evil. So he just says, if you just think about your own experience, you're probably not going to be a Pelagian. It's not a very, it's not a very true to life way of thinking about things. One of those holy scriptures that it goes against is Romans 5 verses 12 through 14, which we read at the beginning of this, which is where sin comes into the world through one man and death reigns from Adam to Moses. All right, so he says, okay, so no one's really a Pelagian, but then there was this view called the semi-Pelagians. This view still exists today. If you, By the way, uh, almost no one who has really thought about it well would, would land in a Pelagian place, but, but here's the, selemi, the semi-Pelagian view, which is kind of a modification. He says, Others admit that the absolute universality of sin cannot be the result merely of following a bad example and that moral evil does not come to man simply from the outside. They are compelled to make the confession that sin dwells inside man, and they t- that he takes his corrupted nature from his parents. But they maintain that this moral corruption does not have the quality of guilt, and therefore also is undeserving of punishment. The innate moral corruption becomes sin, guilt, and culpability only when man freely acquiesces in it, and by his free will, converts it into sinful deeds. So if you followed it there, he's saying there's a semi-Pelagian view that says, okay, you're corrupt, but the corruption doesn't make you deserving of punishment. The corruption just sort of predisposes you toward the wrong things, and you're only guilty when you actually act on that, when you, by your will, convert that inclination into sinful deeds. Now, it sounds pretty good, right? On the surface, you're like, okay, that sounds more biblical. Now, Bavik is going to say, nope, sorry, sorry, it still doesn't work. He goes on to say, 
This semi-Pelagian view proves, upon reflection, to be very inadequate. Four, sin always consists of unlawfulness, illegitimacy, and departure from the law of God, which he laid down for his rational and moral creatures. Such departure from the law can take place in the deeds of men, but it can also come to expression in his dispositions and inclinations. Semi-Pelagianism acknowledges this and speaks of a moral corruption which is antecedent to the choices and actions of a man. But if one takes this seriously, one cannot escape the conclusion that the moral corruption which is now innate in human nature also is sin and guilt and is therefore punishable. There are only two possibilities. Human nature is either in harmony with the law of God and is what it ought to be. In that event, it is not morally corrupt. Otherwise, human nature is morally corrupt and does not correspond to the law of God and consequently renders man guilty and culpable. There is little that can be said against such argumentation. I like when a guy just says, basically, what I just said, you really can't argue with. I'm right. That's kind of what Bob Meek is saying in a very sort of Dutch way. All right. It's his version of a mic drop. It's, it's yeah. basically a mic drop. It's a real kind one. Um, so it, let me, let me here's, he has a very good summarizing paragraph here where he, he summarizes both those views and the weaknesses of them. On page 220, both of the efforts to explain the universal sinfulness of man come down to this. They seek the cause of it in each man's fall individually. According to Pelagianism, each man falls independently. According to semi-Pelagianism, each man falls by himself alone because by his own choice, he takes the inherited desire up into his will and converts it into a sinful deed. Both do injustice to the moral realities which are certain to the consciences of everybody. And both leave unexplained how the absolutely universal sinfulness of the human race can stem from a million times a million decisions of the human will. So I like what he's doing there. He's saying, look, these, this is inadequate to what your conscience knows. Your conscience knows that it's, it's illegitimate to say, oh, you're, you're corrupt, but you're not sinful unless you actually do something. It's like, you, you know that you have sinful desires and longings and thoughts and inclinations, and, and let's be honest about that. Um, and it also leaves unexplained how, how can the world be as bad as it is. The only way you could explain that from a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian view is to say a million times a million people make really bad decisions all the time, and that's how we got here. And he's like, that just there's something deeper going on, something way more universal than just, gosh, so many people have made bad decisions in so many places at so many times. And so that's where he gets to Romans 5 and to the biblical view that speaks of the impartation or the imputation, excuse me, of Adam's sin to his posterity, um, which is what we would call the doctrine of original sin. And Bavink calls it here the doctrine of original sin. Here's how he wants to help us understand it. In place of the individualistic representation of Pelagianism, Scripture postulates an organic view of the human race. Now, I put this out there on the Twitters a couple weeks ago. Did you? Because I read this and I was like, wow, Bavink. People would be calling Bavink woke if he was writing this in 2022. Mm. Because you know what he says? Canceled. Yeah, well, he says, you know what? you are a part of us, you're in solidarity with other people. And that means there's such a thing as corporate guilt and social sin and national sin. And I mean, when you say that in the modern day, people would be like, well, man, that's just woke. But he says, no, no, no. The Christian view is not an individualistic view. If we believe that there is such a thing as original sin, what we're saying is 
Adam's sin was imputed to all of us. Mm-hmm. And we therefore, because we are in solidarity with Adam, carry original sin. And in solidarity with Christ, we are set free from sin. And actually, the Bible's whole view of personhood is that you are in communion and community with others. Um, to say it another way, human nature is, a, is in solidarity, right? We, are, we um, stand in solidarity with one another. Here's, let me read you a section from Bavink where he does a, just a little a deft apologetic move here, and I was like, man, that's really good, All right? When parents have collected property in one form or another for the benefit of the children, those children never object to appropriating the property left to them by their parents' death. They do not object to obtaining the inheritance, even though they haven't earned it. In fact, by their scandalous conduct, they have sometimes proved themselves unworthy of it. If there are no children, the most remote relatives, the grandnephews and second cousins put in their appearance in order without qualm of conscience to share in the inheritance which unknown and neglected members of the family have unexpectedly left behind. He's just teeing you up here. He's like, look, what if you found out that your great aunt died and left a million dollar estate? And guess what? You were the next closest relative. You know what you're going to do? You're going to show up and be like, that was my great aunt. We're related. (laughs) Here's my ID. Let Let me lay claim to that money. Now, here's what he says. All this changes, however... When the same law of inheritance works to somebody's disadvantage. When children are appealed to for support of their poor parents, they immediately cut off all relationship and point the way to the church or to public poor funds. When blood relatives feel themselves injured because some member of the family has, in their estimation, married below the proper rank, remember he's writing in 1909, they immediately leave him in lurch and show him their disfavor. I mean, he's a good Jane Austen reader, right? To some extent, greater or less, the tendency is present in everyone to enjoy the advantages of interrelationship, but to reject the corresponding obligations. That tendency in itself is a powerful proof of the fact that among people there is a oneness, a solidarity, a community whose existence and operation no one can deny. Now is where we get to meddling. This is me, not bombing. Bobbing is just telling you, hey, you know when you don't have any problem with being related to other people and saying that their stuff applies to you? When you gain something from it. <clears throat> you know when you when push it goes back well, on it? Yeah. When you say, oh, you know what? If you're white, you might have some responsibility to bear for the national sin of racism in our past. Hold on. Nope. You're being woke now. And Bobbing's just saying, no, you've you got to have it both ways. You either take both the blessing of inheriting other people's uh, goods and the curse of, of being identified with their sin, or you can't have it one way or the other. And he says, obviously all of us resist it when we, when we're told that we might be implicated in someone else's sin. Um, now let me read you the part I put on Twitter, Dusty, that I'm sure a few people will take issue with. You have to say it cause I might not have seen it on Twitter. Well, and not that you should, but I just put it out there cause I'm like, you know what? I like when I read someone who is a hundred years removed from our modern debate. He says something. It's like, oh, I've heard people say that and get crucified and be called all kinds of dumb stuff. And actually, here's a guy from a hundred years ago saying the exact same thing. He says this. There are individuals, but there's also a bond which binds families, generations, and peoples into a powerful unit. There is an individual soul, but there is also, be it in a metaphorical sense, a popular or national soul. There are particular individual sins, but there are also general social sins. And thus, too, there is individual guilt, but also common social guilt. That's just Bavink. Uh-oh. She's writing about sin. 
saying that you might have social guilt that you inherit. Okay, and again, all of this is his building out of a biblical understanding of sin, which says the problem with human beings is not just that you have made some bad choices, but that you are corrupt by nature and that you have inherited the corruption of your forefathers and mothers and ultimately of Adam and Eve. And that's what condemns us before God and under his law. And the good news is that Jesus has come to set us free from that. And so he ends this section by saying, let us not then charge Adam with guilt, but rather thank Christ who has loved us so exceedingly. Let us not look back to paradise, but forward to the cross. I love it. Yeah. Solidarity. All right. Question people often ask, is all, are all sins the same? Because when you start talking about original sin and saying, hey, we're all sinners by nature and by choice and we inherit corruption, then I think that can quickly lead people to think, well, so you're saying like every sin is basically the same, like I'm as bad as Hitler, you know, to use, <laughs> to use the comparison everybody wants to give, right? When comparing, just compare to Hitler and that will make for a good... Then you look pretty good. The hypothesis. Um, here's how Bovink answers it, and he's not alone in this. This is a very common Reformed answer. It is true that sins are one and indivisible, indivisible, and that whoever has committed one of them has committed them all in principle, James 2, verse 10. But this is not to say that all sins are equal in kind and degree. There is a difference between sins of error and ignorance and sins of presumption. There's a difference between the sins of the first and those against the second table, talking about the tables of the law, the Ten Commandments. There's a difference between sensuous and spiritual sins, and so on. Because the commandments of the one law differ among each other, and because the transgression of those commandments can take place in very different circumstances, therefore all sins are not equally grave, nor deserving of the same punishment. The person who steals prompted by hunger is less culpable than the person prompted by greed. And even though desiring a married woman in one's heart is already to commit adultery, the person who does not fight against that desire but succumbs to it goes on to commit adultery indeed also. Which, this just helps solve some of the dumb rationalizations people have for their sin, which is like, well, I mean, if, if you know, lusting after someone's the same as committing adultery, then why wouldn't I just commit adultery? I've, I've had actually had people ask me that yeah. question as a way of like pushing back. Well, it's not back that big against, a deal. Push, well, just as a way of pushing back against the doctrine of sin. And well, the answer is, yeah, it's, not this, it's not as bad. It, there, every sin is not equal in kind or in degree, but every sin makes us culpable and guilty before the Lord. Which everybody obviously feels, yes. by the way. Yes. There are certain sins, there are certain situations that we've had to deal with pastorally where you feel like, oh man, that's bad. And then there's like, oh, this just wrecked my day. Yep. So everybody feels that with a sense of common sense. Um. If you wonder what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, he has a whole section on that. You can go read it. I'm not going to quote it here, but if you, a lot of people are like, what is that? What is it? What is the unforgivable sin? Well, Bavik has a couple pages on it. He'll tell you what it is, and he'll explain why the good news is that only really, really hardened evil people commit that sin, and you probably haven't committed it. It's not the sin of doubt. It's not the sin of, you know, even like turning your back on the Lord for a few minutes. It's something different than that, and he explains it well. Um, he also... The, he, he gives us a picture here of the beauty of the Reformed and Biblical doctrine of sin because he says what many people want to do, and he's writing in 1909, but I think this tendency is still present today. He says what people want to do is they want to they look at, for instance, criminals, and instead of saying they're morally culpable, we want to say uh, they're just like sick. 
they just need rehabilitation, right? They, they, we have all this sort of lang- this therapeutic language. It's just like these people just, if they had, if they had some kind of um, help, then we could sort of like, they, they would not be as evil or as bad or wouldn't commit crimes or whatever. Um, and he says, in fairness to the facts, this new criminal theory is in part a reaction to another extreme which people went to in the past. And this is, again, where we see Bobbing's wisdom. Is he saying, well, of course, everything is just an overreaction against some other bad error. And so it makes sense that people have this view of criminality because it's a reaction. He says, if nowadays criminals are regarded as mentally ill, formerly the mentally ill were often regarded as criminals. And so he's saying, yeah, yeah, it's a, it, it's good that we no longer regard mental mental illness as criminal and no longer treat people in really um, harsh ways who just are affected by various kinds of illness. This new perspective, he says, is just as one-sided as the old. It does injustice to the gravity of sin, robs man of his moral freedom, degrading him to the level of machine, boldly defies the moral nature of man with its conscience and sense of guilt and in principle undermines the whole basis of authority, government, and the administration of law. Now, I think Christians can disagree on, like, what's the right approach to criminal justice or to those kinds of issues in our society, but I think theologically, Bobbing wants to make sure we're holding to the fact that, hey, human beings are sinners, and they, we do have moral freedom, and we are responsible for our choices, and that has to lie at the center of any properly biblical view of justice, right? So, in all the debates we may have within the church about what the right approach is to these various things, what we can't give up on is the, this, the central core reality of man as a moral agent of human beings as responsible for their actions and therefore responsible for what they do that is um, evil or sinful or criminal. Yesterday, I was walking through the church building. There's a church member here working. He pulled me aside. He's like, hey, I got a question for you. Has this ever happened to you, Dusty? Was it a Pelagian question? It's like, hey, let's talk about... Let's talk about semi-Pelagianism, he said. No, that was not it. But he did say, um, hey, my, my dad uh, listens to a lot of this one preacher. And recently, this one preacher said that the war in Ukraine is God's judgment on Ukraine or something to that effect. And he's like, I've heard people say stuff like that occasionally. When bad stuff happens, they're like, well, this is God's judgment on XYZ Nation or, you know, whatever. That's not an uncommon thing for some people to say when things are happening in the world. And the question is, uh, so the question he asked me was, what, do you, what, do you, what am I supposed to say to my dad about that? Like, it, that doesn't seem right, does it? And I said, no. But actually, it, I think what he asked me was, do you think that's right? Or some, some very direct question like yeah. that where I was like, you're going to make me take a side. Is you? that the case? Because I like to not take a side and just say, well, I mean, what do you think? Come down firmly on the fence. Um, what I said was, I, I don't think it's appropriately nuanced. Um, meaning the the language of retribution that like God, the, the war in Ukraine is God's judgment on XYZ people for XYZ sin is an infelicitous way of talking about how God interacts with the world. And Bavink has a paragraph here where he makes this exact point and helps us understand the biblical nuance that we need here. Okay, let me read it. The earth on which we live is not a heaven, but it is not a hell either. It stands between the two and has something of the quality of each. We cannot point out in particular the relationships between the sins of men and the calamities of life. Jesus himself warns against doing this. He says that the Galileans 
whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, were not sinners above others, Luke 13, 1-3, and the son who was born blind was not punished because of his own sins or of the sins of his parents, but was thus afflicted in order that the works of God should be revealed. We are not, therefore, to infer from the fact that afflictions and calamities accrue to someone that his personal guilt brought them on. The friends of Job argued so and were mistaken. So that's a great, I mean, he's saying, hey, the book of Job proves that it is not true that if something bad happens to you, it's because you did something. Right. That's actually, the Bible says that's not the case. But he goes on to say this. There is no doubt, however, that according to the teaching of all scripture, a connection exists between the fallen human race on the one hand and the fallen earth on the other hand. The present world is neither the best nor the worst possible, but it is a good world for fallen man. This hope makes him live, even though it be but a life of short duration and full of restlessness. So what he's saying is there, it, it is true that we live in a fallen world and that that is a result of sin. So what I tried to say to this f- friend who asked me the question was, no, no, it's, it's, you can't make a one-to-one correlation between if this happens, it's God's judgment on this people. But neither can we say there's no, there's no aspect in which this is God's judgment. We live in a fallen world and everything that happens, natural disasters, war, famine, like all, all bad things that happen are ultimately an expression of God's judgment on sin but not in a way that gets specific like that and makes a one-to-one connection between something that's happened and a person or a group that's doing it. Um, so I think Bavik helps us there have a wise biblical nuance to say, yes, in some sense, everything is God's judgment, but nothing is God's particular judgment for a particular thing at a particular time. We would have to have very, very specific data to conclude that such is true. Um, and so sometimes when preachers make these blanket pronouncements like this, thing that we're experiencing is God's judgment on us. There's a sense in which like, well, that's always kind of true and not true at the same time. And I always want to go, yes, but no. Which also gives way to mystery and imagination and why we want to be making sense of absolutely everything. And we cannot. And why we need the book of Job. Because Job's friends all said, hey, Job, you know what's wrong is you probably did something wrong. (laughs) And at the end of this book, it's just like, nope. The reason Job was afflicted was because... God was doing something, and he left Job without answers, but also vindicated Job from his friend's accusation that this is all because you've done something wrong. And so the book of Job helps us in our doctrine of evil to have appropriate biblical nuance. Now, obviously, Bavink deals with much, much more. This is a 40-page chapter. It's very um, full. His treatment of sin is very full. So I want to encourage you, if, if the questions about sin, evil, suffering, how did sin come into the world, what does it mean that we are sinners, if these questions are of interest to you or they connect to things that you're wrestling with in your own life, I think this is the best 40 pages I've ever read on this topic. And I've, I've read a lot of systematic theologies. I've read a lot of treatments of sin. There are a lot of books out there that explain these things. Bavink is one of the most helpful and clearest. So I hope that what we've done here is to give you a little summary and a little... Um, entrance into the chapter, but I'd encourage you, this is well worth your reading and study so that you can have a proper and biblical doctrine of sin and so that you can avoid being a semi-Pelagian because don't be that. Yeah, don't don't go halfway. Don't go semi. That's right. Be a good, reformed, biblical Christian. Here's Romans 6, starting in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in, and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at ceomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversations.